This week on Life and Faith. The return of the supernatural in popular culture is a return of the demonic, of the negative, of the scary and the terrifying, and not a return of positive supernatural forces. These are personalized devices that are optimized to make us feel attended to. The great challenge to any religious tradition is having power. For several years, the reality kind of lived up to the dream. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. I'm Natasha Moore. And I'm Justine Toe. And today we are bringing you another Seen and Heard edition where we talk through what we've been reading or listening to or watching and we discuss how these draw out something unique in the world that we live in and the human experience, as well as try to connect to the spiritual life or the transcendent, the world beyond, you know, everyday experience. And, you know, if you're a regular listener of Life and Faith and you enjoy these episodes, which I always do, I think it's fun when we can get together, the three of us, why don't you let us know how you feel about them? How about you let Justine know? Yes. Go on to her kind I, of Instagram. I really on her. She'll love to hear that. I really do want to know. Yeah. And um, these episodes are not always based around a theme, but they can be. I remember if you um, remember, guys, our epic one last time about technology. Yep. But I had a look through the past episodes through a performance review lens because it's that time of year and we're doing <laughs> this. And it turns out that Natasha loves a biography. So I declare you are. That's crazy to me exceeding because I feel like expectations. Hardly- I hardly ever read biographies. Trevor so Noah. funny that Born a I crime. do that. For... And then, actually, yeah. is Priest Daddy, is that a biography? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Well, there an, you go, right? Two. Mm. Whereas Simon needs to watch more movies and TV, right? Definitely. Yes. Summer's coming. Maybe I'll, you know. That's right. And I need to summer. play another computer game. So we have some goals to hit. <laughs> I could play a computer game. Honestly, <laughs> it's just never been my life. But we have another theme today. It's disenchantment. And perhaps what we've lost in a disenchanted age. Now, I realize that disenchantment is a kind of a technical term. It comes from the sociologist Max Weber. And it's the label given to an age that regards science as the only verifiable path to truth. Theological or supernatural explanations for existence are discredited as you know, superstition. So under disenchantment... There are no more gods or monsters or angels or demons or superstition, only material existence and what people call verifiable proof. But, you know, it does seem, we're, as we are going to discuss today, that disenchantment is not the full story. So we're going to break the spell today, if you like. And Natasha's first up, but just to set things up, here's a clip from the Sydney Writers' Festival from a few years ago that features beloved Australian author Helen Garner. When you get to a book like Cosmo Cosmolino where there's angels in it, I've never seen an angel. I've seen, I had one standing behind me once, but I didn't dare to look around, but I think it was an angel. (laughs) That's a great story. Do you want to relay that story about the angel behind you? Um, You don't know what I mean though, do you? I thought you told me that story. Did I? Mm. (laughs) We can move on. No, I'm happy to talk about the angel. I was sitting in the audience for this event, actually, and it was fascinating to hear both this story and also the audience response. You can kind of hear the laughter um, that people kind of think she's joking. I mean, it does sort of come out of nowhere. 
But she goes on to describe at length this experience that she had um, some years ago when she was going through a really rough time, her marriage was breaking down. Here's a bit more of Helen Garner's account. I had this feeling that there was a sort of, um, somebody was behind me, not all the time, but just every now and then I'd become aware that there was something standing behind me. And sometimes it would be just when I was sitting at a table reading a book or it was always when I was alone and in my room and I I was aware of of a presence. And at the time I thought, um, I might be going mad. I thought, maybe I'm having um, a crack up. I don't know what this is. But I had a very, I mean, this would have happened over several months. And I uh, felt that I wasn't afraid of it. Uh, I, I knew that it wasn't something bad, but it was something tremendously powerful. And I thought, if I turned around, I thought uh, I would have to bow to it. I would have to kneel down. And I was too scared to look around because I, I, I just, it's very hard to talk about this. I hope it doesn't sound ridiculous, but it, it was a very important thing in my life and I've never forgotten it. Now you can listen to the full story of Helen Garner's encounter with an angel or a mighty force, as she goes on to call it. I'll put the link in the show notes. It is so worth listening to. Uh, Natasha, you recently quoted this conversation in a piece for the Sydney Morning Herald um, on the occasion of Halloween. What point were you making? Like, why bring this up? Basically, the point was that people do, in fact, have supernatural experiences, but they don't talk about them. I mean, you can see that in Helen Garner's account that she's like, this was a really important and meaningful thing for me. But, you know, people don't maybe don't believe me or don't want to hear the story. Um, it's unexpected. And, you know, you see that over and over, I think, in our culture. I was speaking about it particularly for Halloween because, you know, Halloween is sort of a celebration of the spooky and the supernatural, but it only works or the way that we celebrate it only makes sense because it's play like we don't actually believe Mm. in the things you know the witches and the ghosts and whatever that we're dressing up as otherwise it wouldn't Um, be fun would it my gosh (laughs) yeah but in fact there's a bit of a disjunction there because many or even most people certainly globally do believe in a supernatural realm and do believe in some form of maybe supernatural beings and so you know what would halloween look like if we acknowledged that. Yes, and you were kind of implying, suggesting perhaps in your article that maybe this is shifting, that there's more openness to belief in and the willingness to talk about spiritual things. I think there is. I mean, it might just be that I'm kind of quite alert to it, like I'm on the lookout for it. Yeah. But, you know, things like Helen Garner talking about that. I think, Justine, you read something about Hilary Mantel. Oh, my gosh. Um, and in the, the most Hall author. unexpected place ever, like a column by Sean Kelly in the Sydney Morning Herald. He's talking about the Helen Garner angel encounter, but then also that Hilary Mantel had some sort of weird impish-like presence behind her. And she had a real sense that it was small, like it felt like it was the size of a child, but it was just malevolent. Everything about it was like, oh, get away from this thing. So you hear that and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, again, people have these experiences 
don't necessarily talk about them. Like it's kind of embarrassing to talk about in public. But I also think that if that is shifting, we see that shift in sort of the things that we see and hear, the movies, the TV shows, the novels, that I feel like there's more of a supernatural bent to many of these than there used to be. Have you guys noticed this? Yeah, and and the other thing to say is when you talk to people who are not from the uh, Western countries, they're not as shy about talking about spiritual things. And there's much more in many countries an openness to uh, and a sort of assuming of this realm, if you like. Mm. I was just going to observe that Stranger Things is pretty much the biggest Netflix hit ever, right? And that is all about a hidden dimension of life, um, of the world, and malevolent forces operating within it. So mm. it's certainly some some area we like to play in, right? But maybe more along the Halloween lines. It's not real, therefore we can kind of go there. Now, Natasha, you have seen the latest Poirot movie, A Haunting in Venice, and you would say that this is maybe part of this trend as well? Yeah, I thought this was a... When I first saw the trailer for this, I was just really surprised that an Agatha Christie movie, um, so, you know, based on, in theory, one of her (laughs) um, murder mystery novels, best-selling crime author of all time, would be turned into a supernatural horror slash thriller. It is a bit unexpected. Um, So this is one of the Kenneth Branagh ones. It's the third one that he directed and he plays Poirot. So the previous ones were Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. Um, I actually haven't watched Death on the Nile. And they've kind of had mixed reviews, but the newest one is quite different. Uh, And it's available now to watch on Disney+. Plus. Hercule Poirot, I've found something. You are up to something, my friend. I've seen a million so-called psychics, each one a fake. I do not believe in psychics. Somebody is dead. No one shall leave this place until I know who did it. A ghost killed her. There must be a rational answer for all of this. Just admit that you are up against something bigger than you. You can tell just from, you know, that snatch of trailer that this is a very different feel to both the two other films and if you've read any Agatha Christie's to her novels. So I think of her as a very, you know, it's kind of cosy murder mysteries, um, English villages (laughs) and things, (laughs) um, very rational. Um, Sometimes I suppose there is kind of like sometimes there'll be a seance or a spiritualist like as a character there might be rumors of a curse or something but you know Miss Marple, Poirot, Agatha Christie's detectives are all about kind of rational solutions they are eminently sensible people and the setting is always very sensible and everything explicable by kind of human psychology human nature Um, And I was a bit hesitant to watch this one, actually, because I don't like horror movies. Um, I love Agatha Christie, but I don't like horror. And if that is what you're looking for, you'll be disappointed. I was relieved that Mm -hmm. it was actually not that scary. But there is a very strong supernatural element throughout the film. You always have enjoyed the books. Did you enjoy the film? I did enjoy this one, actually, more than Murder on the Orient Express, which has not stayed with me at all. Couldn't tell you anything about that film, which I'm sure I watched once. (laughs) Um, The dialogue of the film is a little bit weird and stilted for the first part. But visually, it's kind of 
gorgeous. Like it's set in Venice, which again is a departure. Like that kind of comes out of nowhere. It's set on Halloween. There's all this very Gothic architecture and vibes. It's set at this Halloween party. The, the novel that it's based on, it's called Halloween Party. And it does have a really good cast as well. So Tina Fey is in this and Michelle Yeoh and they're great in everything, right? Yes, definitely. I will watch Tina Fey in, in everything. Um, what about the supernatural elements though? What's the film's take on those as it goes on? Yeah, I kind of, because I don't want to give spoilers here, obviously. Um, and really kind of the question that the film hinges on is are these supernatural things really happening or is it all going to be kind of tied up in a rational bow at the end by Poirot's formidable powers of deduction? Um, so I won't tell you how that pans out, but I think even the fact that it's entertained throughout, that that features in such a large way. Um, one thing that I will note is that as with so many things, particularly like you mentioned Stranger Things, Justine, it's interesting to me that a lot of these the return of the supernatural in popular culture is a return of the demonic, of the negative, of the scary mm. and the terrifying, and not a return of angels and things like not of positive supernatural forces. And that's certainly true. I mean, this is kind of Halloween themed and it's got a bit of a horror tinge. So I suppose it would go in that direction. But I kind of wonder what that is saying about our culture's new flirtation or kind of re-enchantment with the supernatural. We're going to switch gears here quite radically, even though I really needed a tennis metaphor for a smoother pivot. Simon, you've been reading the biography of tennis icon Andre Agassi. What gives? Yeah, I have. I don't read lots of sports biographies, but this is a famously good one. It's really well written. He had some help, but it was oh, uh, it's uh, a it would, beautifully told story. It would disturb me greatly if he was not only tennis number one, but <laughs> also a world-class author. Writer. Yeah, so Didn't the same guy ghostwrite this as ghostwrote um, Prince Harry's memoir? That's right. That's ah. Yes. Well, he did this before that one, but he got some fame for this. Uh, really well told story. You wouldn't have to be a tennis person to to enjoy it. But people who um, maybe remember Andre Agassi. I remember a, his long hair. That's long what I hair, remember. yeah. So he was yep. a star in the nineties, um, yeah, uh, largely. Like I said, late eighties and, and through the nineties, he becomes world number one tennis player. But he he um, he's a very flamboyant character. You remember the very long mm-hmm. blonde hair. The, Jewelry, and he kind of broke the mold of tennis players who tended to be a little bit, uh, you know, they wear stitched the, up. <laughs> possibly wearing. I the remember white. him with the shaved head. Is well, that, that right? Comes, he has a shaved that head comes, now. Is that, that comes right? later. It's, right. very, it's actually oh, a very okay. significant part of his story. Ooh. But he mm-hmm. has, um, you know, in the fashion, he famously wore denim shorts in in the U.S. Open, and <laughs> you know, he married Brooke Shields, the actress. He's a bit of a rock star of tennis, and he has these two very quite different periods of his life where. He's in all that way I've described him uh, and a bit obnoxious and out of control, <laughs> that sort of vibe of being a bit out of control. He would say everything about that part of his life was him trying to overcome deep insecurities. He's very honest about Do that. Do you mean at the height of his success? Well, at the height of that part of his success, he has sort of two, he has this incredible success, then he kind of plummets and disappears. Right. 
the injuries and various um, ways in which he was getting a bit off track, yeah. let's say. Uh, but then he's sort of reborn, including with the shaved hair. So the hair goes oh. in a very dramatic yeah, moment. Wow. Oh, um, his rebirth. Yeah, and he yeah, felt the, it was the reverse Samson. So he <laughs> got the hair came off and he suddenly got incredible powers. Um, then he grew up in, a, uh, in Las Vegas in a incredibly dysfunctional family. He had a crazy dad who was so obsessed with his little boy, Andre, being a tennis star. So from a tiny age, I think even as a baby, he'd be sort of waving tennis toys, you know, tennis racket toys. Oh, what could this go sort of wrong? Stuff. Yeah, it dominated his whole childhood. And it was actually very strange. And here's the thing, he hated tennis. Now people say, oh, did he get to grow to hate it? No, no, he hated it from the beginning. So Andre said. Agassi hated tennis. Hated tennis. And That's unfortunate. Always wanted to be in team sports and he was never allowed. But he's obviously incredibly talented player. Uh, his father sets up this, he, he creates, makes this ball uh, machine. So a little tiny Andre standing there. He's been pelted with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tennis balls at, you know, at 150 kilometers an hour or whatever it is. And, you know, eventually he gets a little bit of racket on it, a little bit more. He becomes very famously great returner of serve. He hadn't, didn't have a big serve himself. He's not very tall. Big serving tennis stars are pounding him with balls and he was just so good at returning them and taking them yeah, away wow. this sort of stuff. So, he's, so basically if Doc's intervened, he would not have become. He, he might have. <laughs> It might not have gone the way it did. But um, the thing that we want to talk about with him, there's lots of things we could talk about, but (laughs) mid-career, he's sick of the whole thing. He's sick of the fame and the acclaim and he'd become incredibly famous very young. And he writes in his book about how unexciting it is to be famous and how mundane famous people are. He says they're confused, uncertain, insecure. And here's the thing, they often hate what they do. Mm. I found that Wow. Kind of interesting because, you know, I'm sure many of us still look at some of these very accomplished people and just occasionally think, oh, wouldn't that be great? Mm. He, he wants to tell everyone that's not how it rolls. Not, <laughs> A bunch of miserable people. Because yeah. he, he ends up, you know, mixing with heaps of famous people and this is his sort of assessment of it all. Um, but anyway, it's a, he ends up in a kind of strange place in a couple of sections of his life. But he has an epiphany. And it's a, it was really moving, actually, when I got to this part of the book, that completely changes his life. So he'd become very good friends with a restaurant owner in New York. And he's always, whenever he's in town, he'd be at that restaurant and hanging out and chatting and stuff. Uh, the, the restaurant owner's name was Frankie, of course. And Frankie is getting more and more stressed about the future for his kids and how on earth he's ever going to be able to get a college education for them, afford that. And Agassi by this time has become very wealthy. And he just decides after hearing this sort of stuff, I'm going to put aside a chunk of money. It actually was Nike stock. He had stocks in Nike. And he keeps it, puts it away, says that's going to be locked away for 10 years and then it will be released for Frankie's Kids College Fund, you know. Oh, so this is so meaning he's going to help out Frankie, this one family. Yeah. Yeah. So he wow. hel- helps him out. That's his first, he says his first kind of moment where he did something like this for someone else and probably changed those kids' lives. It really changes his. Mm. So this is what he says about that moment. 
helping Frankie provides more satisfaction and makes me feel more connected and alive and myself than anything else that happens in 1996. I tell myself, <laughs> remember this, hold on to this. This is the only perfection there is. He's always a, he's being spoken of as a perfectionist. That was a kind of real dysfunctionality in, in himself. The perfection of helping others. This is the only thing we can do that has any lasting value or meaning. This is why we're here, to make each other feel safe. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so is this his kind of, you know, disenchantment with fame and wealth and his kind of re-enchantment with Yes. Nicely done, Natasha. I think, <laughs> I think I think this is this is this is it, right? He, later in the in the book he's helping a really close friend's very sick daughter and he spends a lot of time in helping her in the hospital and so on. And again he says something similar. He says, This is why we're here, to fight through the pain and when possible to relieve the pain of others. It's so simple. It's so hard to see. And he kind of admits that he sort of gets this feeling and then you know, loses it and gets lost in all the trappings of what he's doing, but keeps coming back to it. And he's, he's seen by tennis fans as this sort of obnoxious kind of brat to start with, and then a very mature, very humble, lovely person in the, in the sort of second half of his career. And it's really, yeah, wow. really kind of wonderful. But he goes on, Andre Agassi um, really took this on. And he, he went on to create initially a, one school in Las Vegas uh, in his hometown. He said, I'm going to go to one of the areas that's really poor and disadvantaged and I'm going to set up this school for people. And um, he said, I, don't, I didn't have much of an education. I'm not pretending to be that, but I'm going to bring in people who can. And he sort of pours a lot of uh, resources into that. But then it gets really big because he's got great connections. He's able to develop this foundation. And they end up with 100, I think the last time I heard, about 120 of these schools around the country, again, in lots of disadvantaged areas. And he, for him, it's become the reason for his existence. It's just changed his, everything about his life. So tell us about the enchantment, re-enchantment, disenchantment. Yeah, well, when we were talking about this, you know, we discussed, is this, does this fit in this, mm. this discussion? You know, maybe, maybe not. But I, I would say that, um, in a sense, you know, when we think about a society that's largely cast off religion and the transcendent and the accounts of the good life that go with those religious claims and so on. You do sometimes lose something really important in, well, we would say you, you absolutely lose something essential in that because we're human beings. So you know, we would want to argue that we are both material beings, but also spiritual beings and that most people sense that. And that's coming out in you know, some of the discussions we're having today. And it, turned out for Andre Agassi, at least, being the best tennis player in the world and all the things that go with that didn't fulfill him. But what did was using your gifts, your talents on behalf of others. And so for him, it is a kind of a re-enchanting moment that really energizes him. There are material things that he's attending to, even in that work. But I do think there's something immaterial in what he says he's receiving himself in that meaning and purpose and that he's passing that on to other people. I think he would say that it has eternal significance and that's changed everything for him. Does he believe in the eternal though? Yeah, he does. Yeah. Wow. He'd call himself a Christian. He wouldn't, wouldn't call it, a, I wouldn't say he's a conventional Christian, but yeah, he, he definitely has a faith. Hmm.
Okay, so here we go back to a perhaps more direct connection with (laughs) disenchantment and the transcendent. Uh, Justine, you've been reading Susanna Clarke's Piranesi. In fact, you've been going on about this book I'm sorry. for quite some time, right? In <laughs> no. a good way. I'd love to hear what you're passionate about. <laughs> I've read it too. I haven't been going on as much, but no. it's, it's, I'm glad to talk about it though. Okay. Well, um, thank you for talking about it with me. Um, so Susanna Clarke is a novelist. She wrote Piranesi after she wrote her first novel, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which went on to sell lots and lots mm, of copies. Popular. My gosh. Yep. And won all these awards. So that book is about this alternative version of 19th century England where magic is real and is used to fight in the Napoleonic Wars, right? Mm. Anyway, so she was trying to write the sequel, but she um, experiences chronic fatigue and is currently making her way through that. But she needed a more manageable, in inverted quotes, kind of project, and so decided to write Piranesi. And I swear you can see a little hint of Piranesi in Jonathan Strange as well, which makes me super excited because it's like she's creating a multiverse in a way, (laughs) or or a metaverse, I suppose, of her of her fiction. And um, Piranesi itself is wonderful. It's much more slender, but it won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2021. I think it's just delightful. Um, You're going to have to go with me and Simon, please jump in if you think I'm not uh, explaining the plot very well. So the main character is a person called Piranesi, who feels as though that isn't his real name. Okay. And that is significant later on. And he lives in a house which you should hear as having a capital H because he calls it a house with a capital H. A house. A house, yes. Mm. And it's like an art gallery that goes on forever. So it's got halls upon halls in every direction you can imagine. And these halls are filled with statues of all these, I don't know, random creatures and or people. And the upper floors of this house have clouds and the lower floors are flooded and you have tides sweeping through the house every now and then, which means that Piranesi has to get his stuff out of the way. <laughs> and get to safety. It's a, yeah, it's a threat. There. Yeah, there is. And as far as he knows, the house is the same as the world. Yes, that's, and- that's important. He doesn't understand anything beyond that. I found it all very bit destabilizing to begin with. I don't remember sounds, how I felt. because I've been meaning to read this book because you, Justine, and other people as well have told me how much they love Piranesi and that I should definitely read it. And I've meant to. I've meant to read, you know, the Jonathan Strange one as well. But this sounds so abstract and kind of like <laughs> like it would work in a short story but would be insufferable for a whole novel. I don't know. I really got into it. I mean, firstly, it's so kind of weird and like who is this guy? What is he doing here? But then, like, it's a detective story, really, and you're kind of piecing together all the things, and that will appeal to you, right? I mean, you love Agatha Christie. It's a different kind of mystery. And back in. And back in. It's definitely (laughs) mystery and some shadowy figures. Yes, we'll get to that. Yes, but stay tuned. But the thing that's worth saying first up is that Piranesi has this incredibly deep connection, and I would say communion with the house. So in a very real sense, it is enchanted for him. And it's like what it means to live in an enchanted world. Piranesi kind of conveys a sense of that. So he says stuff like this, the beauty of the house is immeasurable. It's kindness infinite. He also says, the world feels complete and whole and I, its child, fit into it seamlessly. The house provides for and protects its children. Now, it's you a can't, creation. It's a creation. And you can't hear it, but there's a lot of capital letters in, that, <laughs> in, in those words there. And it's as though they have 
a personality, a being, an existence in and of themselves. They're not just simply generic objects here and there. Mm. Everything is saturated with significance. And as he says, the world speaks to me every day, which I'm like, that seems to me to scream enchantment. There is something more going on here than first appears. Did you have, like I did, a bit of a sense of you weren't sure if this is a benevolent presence that, mm. uh, that he's engaging with or, or whether there's danger there. It felt like that was left, you know, as something to grapple with. Yes. And even more so because it turns out Piranesi, I should know this, is the name of some architecture kind of figure. <laughs> should I look this up now while we're doing this? Where he, I think he's, um, he's associated with all these really rich, detailed um, mm. designs of labyrinths. And it basically, this kind of house that he's in is like a giant labyrinth, right? It is. It so d- maybe he's a ended. prisoner? Mm, well, yes. Exactly. Is he? Mm, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not even going to bother trying to look up more information about the real life Pyrenees. You can go do that <laughs> on your own time. But yeah, so it is, it is mysterious. It is uh, interesting and intriguing. Okay. So where does it go? Well... Remember how I said how the world speaks to him? There's a scene that I wanted to bring to you because I love it. So he's feeling as though the world is in communication with him, right? And there happen to be seagulls in the house who kind of visit and eat and put their droppings all over the statues. And Piranesi in one scene is wondering if there is a particular meaning to why the birds alight on this statue rather than another. So in one case... He's got a group of birds landing on a statue of an angel blowing a trumpet, and then another group of birds land on a statue of a ship sailing on waves. So he looks at these uh, birds landing on these statues, and he thinks to himself, maybe there is a message that is going to come from afar, right? And to us, this just sounds (laughs) really extreme. It sounds like reading the entrails. That's right. You're reading what you want into what you're seeing. But the plot actually bears out. Pyrenees' way of seeing the world, if you kind of piece together what ends up happening, it's like, oh, maybe he's not just naive. This is the disenchanted take, right? Maybe a disenchanted person doesn't have any kind of way of being in the world that he does, where he can kind of receive a message Mm. and it is actually a real thing. So it's just... It corresponds with something that's out that's there. That's actually there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And like, you know, of course, you know, you shouldn't just think that the you're receiving signs from the universe in all sorts of ways and therefore you should change the course of your life, of course. But it is a way of just getting someone like us, right, a, a perhaps a disenchanted modern person, to kind of remind ourselves that we live in this world where there is no more mystery or poetry in some ways and everything is just interpretation. It, it is what you make of it. Whereas Piranesi's way of relating to the world actually is is way more appealing and is more strangely kind of like in tune with the way that things might actually be. I'm not saying go all in with it, but it's just a reminder that there's another way of living in the world um, which has its own possibilities and beauties. What about the fact that I think he represents a, an innocence and like a almost like a pre-fall state. That, mm. that sort of naivety and, and, and a lovely sort of innocence. And, and yet the progression through the story suggests that it kind of needs, Do you remember it, reading it needs this book? more than um, what he has. Like there's a, a truth that he needs to discover. 
See, it's funny you should mention that because he's not the only person who exists in this world, right? Yeah. There's another character whom Piranesi calls the other because as far as Piranesi is aware, the other and himself are the only people in the world, right? So you only need one other person. And that other is on the hunt for some kind of secret knowledge that is apparently in the house somewhere. And he wants this knowledge to... Um, he says that the, this great and secret knowledge will help us to conquer death, to dominate lesser intellects. <laughs> Are your spidey senses tingling at this point, right? Because because it's a it's an interesting thing. You know, we have this innocent character uh, who might be imprisoned and there is a search for a great secret knowledge underway as well. But it's interesting that Peronese decides at some point in the story that he's not really that interested in that secret knowledge anymore because he can see that what it does to the world is just uh, reduce it. The house becomes just a means to an end. You don't, you no longer see it and appreciate it for what it actually is. Mm. So I think what Clark is really doing here is offering us a kind of critique of disenchantment. She's not saying abandon science, right? I think Piranesi is an incredibly scientific character. He studies the tides. He pays close attention to the world around him. Yes. And, and he in, seeks in to understand it. saves his life. Like in, in yeah, that's right. Right on the first page of the, of the story. That's right. But she is kind of saying, though, that when enchantment gives way to disenchantment, that sense of mystery and beauty and value to the world is left vulnerable and maybe in the end power becomes the reason people want to plunder the house, right? Or it, they want to strip mine the world of all its beauties. And maybe there's a forgetting of the beauty in the first place. Okay, so Justine, you've still got me in with kind of the mystery thing and with the kind of disenchantment, re-enchantment thing. You also, you say that Susanna Clark is kind of a contemporary interpreter or maybe even successor to C.S. Lewis. If you can convince me of that, I will read this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's absolutely clear that she is a huge fan of him. I found an interview um, in The Guardian where she said that anyone who's read Narnia as a child, for whom it is a deeply formative book, is constantly aware that they have that desire. One day there will be a wardrobe. Something that will take you there. It's a very old longing in me. And I'm pretty sure you guys feel the same pull of the wardrobe as well. And Susanna Clarke, she opens Piranesi with a quote from The Magician's Nephew, right? Which, which is where you've got Uncle Andrew, who's the, you know, the would-be scholar, the would-be uh, magician, who's actually going to do magic on the, the two kids, right? And, and to, you, to recruit them into his dastardly aims. So there's a direct reference to The Magician's Nephew. But through some strange kind of turn of events, possibly my own receiving of messages from the universe, I'm actually not kidding, I ended up reading That Hideous Strength, another C.S. Lewis novel this year. And when I put That Hideous Strength alongside Piranesi, I'm like, these stories talk to each other in so many beautiful and wonderful ways. And I'm obviously not going to go into it because um, that would just overtake this whole thing. But one thing they share is that human impulse, right? The, just remember what I was saying about the other. He wants to dominate and wants to kind of plunder the world of this secret knowledge and then use it for his own ends. That is certainly a theme that is played out in um, that hideous strength as well. And that desire to dominate winds up becoming the desire to make other people your instrument right, to not see them as a person and worthy in their own right, but just to see them as to what you can get out of them. Yeah. So 
yeah, I just think it's a really, um, it's an unnerving comparison, I think, to me. And also that what's unnerving is that when I read Piranesi, like I identify more with the other than I care to admit, right? Like Piranesi does seem impossibly childlike, impossibly naive. He speaks and at the end of every sentence, there's an exclamation mark, you know, the way that he is. But what he has, he has a sense of deep trust. He has a sense of hope. He has that deep communion with the world. He has everything that a disenchanted worldview lacks. So I, I know why I'm drawn to these stories of re-enchantment is because I want that so deeply and badly. You know, I want the wardrobe <laughs> to take me to another place. You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, Natasha Moore and Justine Toe. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We will post links to everything that we've (laughs) mentioned here in this meandering conversation that you might want to follow up on or read or watch for yourself. Yes, and please do tell me what you think about Piranesi as well. And if you want to know what Natasha thinks about it as well, let's all peer pressure her into reading it post-haste. Maybe you could also point out another sports biography that Simon um, (laughs) should read next. And if you've enjoyed Seen and Heard, please do tell us. We would love to hear from you. You can email podcast at publicchristianity.org or come and find me on Instagram where I'm trying to build my empire and dominate less. No, I'm not going to really do that. No. You can find me too if you look hard enough. As always, we want to thank our producer, the eclectic Alan Douthwaite. Next week. I feel rather mixed feelings about the fact that issues of recognition and status have become so important because politics is not really a place where you can resolve a lot of these kinds of issues and it too easily becomes sort of my team versus your team.